Although my cousin lives, my cousin lives in Florida and loves my our podcast. cousin lives in Florida and loves our podcast too. <laughs> it is a redeemable state. Oh my god. Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture has treated women in a given week. It's almost always terribly, and this week, just like last, it's particularly terrible, and I think it's safe to say that it will continue to be terrible for the foreseeable future. Um, This week, I have Hazel Sills. Hi, Hazel. Hi, Rachel. And Teo Bugby. Hello, Teo. Hi. And we are co-hosting alongside MTV News' TV critic, Ingu Kang. Hi, Ingu. Hello, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, basically this show is going to be us processing um, the new Trumpian reality and talking about what we can do, if anything, what we should do, how we should or should not engage the people in our lives that contributed to this hellhole that we now live in, and also what the (laughs) role of art is in the coming revolution. And uh, then we'll solve a lady problem for our friend Elizabeth from Brooklyn, and then we'll all go home and lie down forever. (laughs) Okay, so now I think we're all just going to go around and talk about how we're feeling and the various qualities uh, and levels of our despair. Let's start with you, Hazel. So right now, (laughs) uh, the biggest thing that I'm feeling is probably just like fear is is being scared uh, because just there are so many aspects of the Trump presidency that I feel like are vague or up in the air and I don't feel like I even knew a lot of his concrete policies like as a politician during the election and and now it just feels like the floodgates could open or Pandora's box is opening and like all of my worst fears or like America's worst fears are coming to life but this is this podcast can be really dark um (laughs) we'll try to keep it okay so now yes fear um had a good ugly cry you know, mm-hmm. a few days after the election. But now I, I feel, I feel, I definitely feel guilty. I, I feel like I could have canvassed more. I feel like I could have phone banked more. I could have reached out to those family members in like the really distant corners of my life who were probably supporting for Trump or had supported Trump. And so, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a mixture of fear and guilt. And basically right now, just like trying to take those two feelings and do something productive with it, because I definitely spent most of last week wallowing. Teo? Um, I think I, I feel afraid, but I mostly, I mostly just feel very, very angry. And I've felt angry since Tuesday night. And I've felt angry Wednesday morning. And I've been just feeling it ever since. I think part of me is just really mad at because I was I was afraid of the Trump presidency 15 months ago when he was like debating in the Republican primaries, you know. And so part of me is so frustrated and so angry at the all of the people who said this would never happen and that it wasn't possible and the uh, we have to treat both sides as if they were equal and we're going to wait and see what's going on with the Trump presidency now because you know, you have to 
I don't know, uh, give him a chance. Mm -hmm. And I just really feel like my chances are given up. I'm tired and done with all of this sort of um, just dilly-dallying. Yeah, that's what I've been struggling the most, I think, with the already the normalization of it all. Like Mm -hmm. how people are like, even people in my life or people I know, or they're like, we got to give him a chance. Now he's the president. Like, this is how our system works. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I want us all to continue. I want to hold on to these feelings. You have no obligation. Yeah. You have no obligation. And I refuse. I refuse. I also think America has been lying to itself for so long that it's like, listen, this is why we're in this situation. And it's your responsibility to face up to the hard facts Mm -hmm. of like, you don't Reality. get to feel better. Yeah, no, no, no. You don't get to, like, cloud yourself in mm-hmm. illusions right now. Ingu, how are you feeling? I am pretty much right there with all of you. Um, I'm a little bit older, I think, than, like, all of you. And so I remember I was in college when Bush was elected for the second time. And I had been thinking the whole time, like, how is this at all possible? And sorry to, like, give you guys some history. I know, like, this is not, like, a lady problem. (laughs) But (laughs) I remember thinking really, really sad. But for me, after Trump, this is, like, fear. This is, like, I mean, Bush was terrible because he was so unabashedly unapologetic about, like, we're going to go to all of these other countries and then we're just going to kill people and we're going to take all of their stuff and that's how America is going to be great. And now it feels like... Trump is really taking that anger and that rage and that aggression and pointing it inwardly into the country. Um, Not to say that, like, American lives are more uh, important than Iraqi or Afghan lives at all, but it's a different kind of more visceral fear. And I'm also right there with Rachel in trying to see— how fast people are going to try to normalize this and how we have to keep reminding ourselves that there really is nothing normal about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I want to hold on to the horror and I and I vow that we will do that in this podcast or as much as we can, like not ever just talking about it like, okay, this is the reality now. Yeah. I think there's also think an it- issue where people think that we're going to keep our normal. And that's the other thing that's really horrifying to me. Uh, Right before we were doing this podcast, I was reading an interview with a mother of two daughters and all three of them had voted for Trump. And the mother who was being interviewed was basically like, they're not going to take away gay marriage. They're not going to take away abortion. And so there's this almost like regressive baby-like attachment to their sense of reality as if Mm. Trump has any sort of loyalty to, you know, what, to the progress that we have been making for the last 50 years, because obviously his whole agenda is to undo all of that. Or it's not, who knows? Like, we literally don't know. But this idea that, like, America will just be America still in 2017, I think that is something that we have to get rid of and we have to really hold on to our fear for lack of a better way of putting Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Totally. 
I mean, another thing I've been thinking a lot about, too, and I, I want to ask, like, what everyone thinks about this is, like, so my brother and I were having a long conversation on Wednesday or Thursday about, like, what where our energy is best directed. So, you know, is it worth it to engage my family members who may have voted for Trump or who don't understand why we're all so scared or why we're all so angry or why we all feel guilty? Or is it, like, are we not going to change minds? Because I'm I'm very frustrated by this, by this idea of showing each other empathy or finding unity as a country and, like— I'm like, I'm not going to, like, show empathy to people who would never show have shown em- any empathy to anyone but their own group. And I think for me, it's not necessarily um, that we need to reconcile with people we disagree with. I am definitely feeling in a place where it's just like we have to focus on effective strategies to convince the people in our lives or not in our lives, you know, beyond our lives who – who voted for Trump, who are able to be reached, who are like within, um, yeah, within distance from a an argument of human decency, basically. Because I think one of the things that's been frustrating, too, is watching everyone burn all of their energy in like Facebook you know, comment wars or totally or, or like tweet feeds, you yeah. know what I mean? Where it's like, I just don't think that this is an effective use of where our energies can be right now. Yeah. Because And it's not because th- those aren't good things to do. It's just that I can already feel people becoming exhausted, you yeah. know what I mean, a week in. And the thing is, is like, this isn't this isn't just a four-year fight either. Even if he were to leave office after four years, this is something we're going to have to be dealing with right. every day for the rest of our lives. And the thing is, is like, that's a long haul. It's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And so you have to sort of figure out the best way to reserve your energy and point your energy in a direction that's useful. Yeah, that's something I have not been doing. Like, I've been in my mom's, like, Facebook wall comments with strangers. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, there's a, there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, if you're talking to people who voted for Trump and they do not have any voice of dissent in their lives, if there's someone like my grandparents who mm-hmm. voted for Trump and they, they're not on the Internet, they're not on Facebook, they're not on Twitter, they're probably not reading the same news sources that we are. Like, if I am that person in their life that can give them that voice of dissent, like— I that is a necessity to me, mm-hmm. like to be able to do that, to be able to talk to them. And yeah, it might it's just one small part of change. But like, I do think that 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 does matter. Yeah, like, totally. I don't know. Yeah, I would never want any anyone to get like burnt out talking to their family members or, you know, within like uh, Facebook comments. But I just feel like if there are people in your life who you need to speak to about this, like I do think that is important. And can and can change things True. in the long run. It's also too focusing on, on the people in your life who are in your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like the people who you have an emotional attachment with, who you know, who you love outside of, mm-hmm. you know, what their political beliefs are. That's a different conversation to be having than like uh, arguing with a troll who comments on your tweet. You know what I mean? Where it's like. You're you're like I can feel in myself getting exhausted dealing with people who have no interest in my humanity. You know right. what I mean? And that's that's like a a um, just an empty drain. You know what I mean? You'll continue to like fill, throw away just energy that could be going to something else. Ingu, I mean, I'm curious, like 
people, young kids or, or teenagers who are living with their parents and they voted for Trump or people whose loved ones voted for Trump and have literally no chance of being swayed. Like, how do you, somebody is in your life day to day, you're married to a Trump voter. Like, how, what do you do? I mean, I feel like you're married to a Trump voter really is like the going to be the horror movie of like 2018. <laughs> <laughs> so I married a Trump voter. Um, you know, I feel so torn about this one because I have like mar- relatives I've married into who are Trump supporters and I've had conversations with them over the years and I honestly feel like I have never ever gotten anywhere with them Mm -hmm. and so sometimes I feel like you know like if it's something that like cannot be won you should save your energy or like when I learned how to be a grader when I was in grad school, they taught us this like ABA system where you put in a compliment and then you put in like a constructive criticism and then you like <laughs> uh, close it back up with a compliment. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so no, you have to strategize. Yeah. And it's, you know, a shit sandwich with some nice bread, but sometimes that's what people <laughs> need to eat. You know, you just need to sort of couch it nicely for them, I feel like. Ingu, you wrote a great piece this week uh, called We Lost the Election, Let's Win Pop Culture with Inclusiveness. And I'm I'm curious if you can summarize that for our listeners and and, and just explain what you were thinking when writing it. I started writing this piece because I, of course, felt a lot of despair after the election. And I was trying to square that circle with all of this hope that I got from pop culture, especially in the last couple of years, really, where it always felt like there was something that I wish that had existed when I was growing up, like Jane the Virgin, or a show like Transparent, where I literally still cannot believe that it exists, because it seems like it's been transported, like, from a, from the future, like, mm-hmm. through a time machine, and now, like, that's how we have it. And so... I really just wanted to try to get at why pop culture has been able to give me that hope and also how we can continue this trend of pop culture that's really, that really sort of helps create the kind of world that I want to see and this kind of culture that I want to see. And so I was thinking about what we can do as people who care about pop culture, um, what we can basically, what kind of viewers we can be and what kind of critics we can be, not like people who necessarily write reviews, but people who try to think critically about what they're watching. And so essentially, I wrote this piece about how we should watch, I guess. And I wrote about two characters that have really continued to stay with me weeks after I had watched the TV show and the movie that they were in, um, which is which are the main character in Moonlight and the best friend character in HBO's Insecure. And those two characters really represent for me um, 
how we can sort of move on as a culture and what kind of new voices voices and perspectives and life experiences that they're bringing to the table that we haven't really seen yet. And so, you know, of course, my hope is that we can have more characters like that. Mm -hmm. And if we are people who want to watch critically, how can we continue to make sure that we continue to have this type of culture? Because I don't want it to go back to something like the 80s, where it was basically an artistic void, where like the most (laughs) memorable movie of like the 80s is something like Top Gun. (laughs) I want us to have, sorry, Tom Cruise, but I want (laughs) us to have like substantial entertainment Mm -hmm. that makes us feel seen and that makes our lives feel important. And, like, we're responsible, too, I think, as both culture critics and as uh, people who consume culture, like, to seek out the culture that is like this, like what you're talking about, and not just about straight white dudes or even straight white women. You know, I think that's something we should keep in mind, too. And that's the stuff we should be recommending to these people in our lives, maybe even as, like, an em- like an exercise in, in empathy. I even think, though, to— yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I think one of the things that— we as culture critics, as opposed to just people who who consume, you know, audiences that we should be aware of is not just um, the creative decisions that happen, but also the corporate culture that exists around the creative decisions that are allowed to happen. Because I think one of the things for me that's scary looking forward into this Trump era is imagining not that people won't want to be producing great art, and art that addresses the communities who are going to be affected by this so much as I'm afraid that the people who control the purse strings will tighten them for the, yeah, for people of color, for queer people, that Mm -hmm. the kind of tiny inroads will start to shrivel up again. Um, And so I think as culture critics, one of our responsibilities too is to be aware of the world in which these things have to exist in you know what I mean to be aware of who is the person who runs Sony you know who is Mm -hmm. like green lighting shows at MT not at MTV (laughs) who is green lighting shows at HBO right Um, and I think that's something too that it's not just you know art doesn't exist in a void Um, it would be nice if it did then you wouldn't have to worry about getting paid but um (laughs) You do. And so I think one of the things to be aware of is just the way that money moves and the way that money affects the lives of the people who make the things that we want to see. And then I think also, too, so Jessica Hopper wrote a great piece about um, like the limit, like not relying on art too much at this period of time because it's not art's responsibility. It's not like people are like, but such great art is going to come out of this. Well, yeah. And I think, yeah, so you at least, so I'm a music writer and obviously like making music is not as, you're not always relying on like those modes that Taya was just talking about where it's, you know, it's super expensive and you're relying on like a film studio. Yeah, but um, Jessica's piece was just about that like knee-jerk reaction. Well, oh, you know, now that we have Trump, in office, like punk is going to get really good or Mm -hmm. political music is going (laughs) to get really good, which is a super dangerous way of thinking because, you know, Jessica brings up all these points about like, okay, but these punk musicians, like what happens when they don't have health care and what happens when they're being deported? And it's like, so do you really care about their lives as artists? And also like 
to say that, okay, now we're going to get great political music and art is erasing all of the amazing political music that's even just come out this year. Mm-hmm. Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, Chance the Rapper, these are top 40 artists. These are not punk artists. Mm-hmm. And they are making incredible political music right now. And so, yeah, I completely reject that, like, oh, now we're going to get really great good. music. And yeah. it's like, yeah. Well, look around you because people are already making it. And if you really cared, you would be actually listening to those people and uplifting those people and not, I guess, apparently waiting for someone to come well, into and office to, to change. It's also just it. such an excuse to pat yourself on the back for being a consumer as opposed to somebody who's like active, mm-hmm. you know, in a way where it's like, oh, great. I'll listen to this. I'll listen to this artist on Spotify, which pays them three cents a year. Right. <laughs> and that'll be the same as, you know actually advocating for their rights, advocating for their ability to make art, yeah. and also, advocating for their lives. Don't, try not to listen to music on Spotify. Try buying. <laughs> As a music writer, I want to say, please buy music. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Hazel. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I mean, to that point, I think it's also important to note that there's also been this argument that political comedy like The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight or Samantha Bee's show Um, are going to be so good now because there's all of this anger and there was a sort of like golden age of The Daily Show when Bush was president. And therefore, I think there's this thinking that, well, like, if that was gold, like, this is going to be like platinum in terms of comedians making fun of politicians. And I feel like it's really, that kind of political comedy is really great if you are you know, in the position to laugh and if, like, it's something that consoles you. But on the other hand, like, that doesn't take away from the suffering of that so many people are going to face. And so I feel like as much as I personally love John Oliver and Samantha Bee and Seth Meyers, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's important to realize that, like, that is a bomb for our souls, but it's not anything remotely resembling activism. And so I feel like that difference is really important to always keep in mind. Like, this exists so that you can feel better. This is not changing the election. If political comedians had the ability to change, like, you know, to, to if they had the power to get somebody elected... like we would not be in this horrible place that we are right now we have a lady problem this week this is from elizabeth from brooklyn she didn't want to call in but she gave us permission to read this message she actually sent this message to me on facebook and i thought it was really important that we talk about it so i'm going to read elizabeth's words um I've been disconcerted by the incredible gap in support for Hillary that white women showed compared to other women of color. I'm trying to grapple with not wanting to see my white sisters as an enemy because our patriarchy thrives on pitting women against one another. But I'm also very, very troubled by the fact that this happened and now we're all in danger. I think ultimately I'm feeling lost as a woman of color. I'm Asian American because I want all of us to grow from this awful experience. But I think this requires holding white folks accountable for this. It's so tricky If you're too forceful, people shut down. But if you're too gentle, they won't get the full impact of why people are afraid and angry and don't want this to ever happen again. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's extremely important for us to talk about. I mean, especially as two and a half white women, you know, like I just think it's and I'm just curious what you guys think about this particular issue. 
So for, uh, well, for me, um, this issue is complex. You know, I'm mixed race. There was no way growing up with a mom who was not white to live in a bubble of whiteness. You know, it's not possible when you even the community I grew up in was diverse, but it was also I was around a lot of conservative white people and I was very aware of the ways in which they impacted the life that my mom led, you know, and the life that my family led and the life that I lead. You know, there's a there is I think when you when you're intimate intimately related to that, um, there is no way really to think in categories that are black and white that um, automatically make someone your ally. And I think this is a case in which saying that, you know, it's kind that you don't want to see white women as an enemy, but at the same time, it's also a fact that white women voted for Donald Trump and in a majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. And that's something that I think that there's a way in which even feminist, white feminist media likes to sort of overlook the fact that very, very often white women asso- like would rather associate with their race than their gender and that there are power dynamics that white women are able to buy into mm-hmm. and able to sell themselves into that allow them to profit when people of color are disadvantaged or they see that as a way for them to gain advantage at least. And so I think part of moving forward from this election is being aware of who you identify as your allies and being creative with who you identify as your allies. Um, Seeing each individual person as responsible for themselves and when someone is Acting is voting is uh, yeah is is behaving in a way that endangers your life, endangers the lives of the people that you care about. They have they have given up their right to be considered your ally, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's something that white women have to grapple with. Yeah, yeah, Inga, what do you think? I think it's first important to keep in mind that it was something like 53% of white women who actually, you know, like it's a majority who went for Trump. It's a majority, but it's, you know, that's very close to 50%. I, as a woman of color, am not going to sit here and, you know, defend (laughs) white women. Um, But at the same time, I feel like that's a number that's important to keep in mind. I also think that... What we're seeing is essentially uh, basically the way that like different branches of feminism have grown. So you have uh, women of color or intersectional feminists who can see like a larger picture. And then you have feminists like the Ivanka voter who are really into a kind of white upper middle class Um, probably corporate sense of white feminism. And, you know, I'm sure they will tell you that they are into women's empowerment, but their vision of that is very particular. And I think 
it's important to keep in mind, or I think it's a reality check that, you know, not all women are feminists. And as much as that really pains to sort of come to terms with, I think this is where a lot of our work lies. This was a pretty strong rebuke, I think, toward all of women's progress. And so I think it's has to be, I don't know. I guess I don't really know what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot of great stuff. I mean, uh, yeah. And I think t- uh, Hazel and I were talking too, like you were talking about this imaginary sisterhood. Yeah, I mean, my when I saw that number, you know, 53%, like my my reaction was, you know, like white women do not deserve a sisterhood because it literally does not exist and I just I just feel like if we if if we could unite together on something like Trump then like we have really serious work to do and I don't know just that note in Elizabeth's uh question about like um you know our patriarchy thrives on pitting women against one another and it's like well if white women are are you know seeing each other as the enemy and are disagreeing on something like Trump then it's like I can completely understand why she would want to see white men, women as the enemy because I see some white women mm-hmm. as the enemy and I'm a white woman. Right. So, I don't know, for me it was very much like and again like to go back to what Teo was saying it's like you just can't say like this is what all women need. This is, you know, feminism that just sees women as like this blanket group and doesn't recognize that women of all races and, and genders within it experience oppression differently. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I was very, like, fuck sisterhoods for white women because we can't unify and we need to unify. We don't get nice things anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you, you just don't You just don't get that, like, oh, you know, women can come together right. through their gender and unite because gender is what unites us. And it's, like, this election proved that that is clearly not, not the true. case. You can't. You can't say that anymore. No. And most of the – honestly, most of the people that I'm randomly arguing with on my mom's Facebook wall are white women, which yeah, is crazy. Just, I'm like, you were complicit in your own oppression. What are you doing? <laughs> doesn't make Here's any sense. Here's the thing, though. I think that as much as we really – you know, as much as we want to lay a lot of the blame on the white women's feet, and of course, a lot of that deserves to be there – it's not white women who voted Trump into office. It's white men. Like, <laughs> I don't—I feel like we should not forget that, like, Trump's base support is white men. And I think that uh, we shouldn't sort of deny—it's uh, it's, going to sound terrible, but I don't think that we should deny conservative white women their own— uh, place in the sisterhood either, really, when they're basically fighting the same fight that we are, just like on easy mode. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way of putting it and I, a generous way of putting it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, I just don't know. I don't know if I've gotten to that point yet. It's like, it's hard because, you know, at a certain point, there are some people who are so married to that conviction of um that have no desire for sisterhood you know like that's not really something that they think about um and yeah and and they perpetrate they you know 
let this hate live on and they raise their kids with it. They their teachers, they're involved in the world, you know, they're involved in their communities, actively making them worse. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know that that's something that is forgivable for me. Yeah. I feel you. I'm sorry on behalf of the 53%. The what? Yeah. (laughs) 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 I think that about does it. On that note, um, listeners, please make sure that you call and leave us a message, whether you have a question about a lady problem or you just want to tell us how you personally are combating Trump or you want us to give you you know, a script for your relatives at, at the over the holidays, whatever you need from us. We are here for you. Call us at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. And if you don't want to call, you can also tweet at us at LadyProblemsPod. Uh, or at our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at Rachel underscore Handler. Teo, what's yours? I'm at TMI Bugby. Hazel. At Hazel Sills. And Ingu? At Ingu Kang. Okay, so yeah, just, you know, drop us a line, whatever you're feeling. Um, So thank you guys so much. This was a difficult, but, you know, also a little bit fun discussion that we had today. Thank you, Teo. Thank you. And Hazel. Thank you. And Ingu, thank you for um, talking about your piece with us. It was extremely illuminating. Thank you. And if you guys want to read uh, Ingu's piece, it's at mtv.com. It's called We Lost the Election. Let's win pop culture with inclusiveness. All right. So that was Lady Problems. And I'm Rachel Handler. And we will see you in two weeks because we are taking next week off to go home and fight with our families at Thanksgiving. Hopefully you'll do the same. See you soon. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano. James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. 